0: in 2nd Timothy the 4th chapter the apostle paul writes these words 2nd Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 16 he says at my first answer no man stood with me but all men forsook me i pray god that it may not be laid to their charge notwithstanding the lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the gentiles might hear And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, Paul says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Here, the Apostle Paul deals with the matter of our eternal security. I don't really know what section uh, we would uh, put our eternal security in. Uh, I'm going to say it probably falls under the category of when salvation becomes vital, we know that it will remain until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are born of the Spirit of God and you... Uh, have an eternal life imparted to you you have no concern no matter what may befall you in this life that that life that christ has provided you can ever be taken away now i realize that there are some that charge us with that because that we believe that that we essentially give license or authority to live any way that we would so desire the bible actually speaks very clearly against that Galatians chapter 5, the apostle makes it very clear that we have been given liberty rather though we're not to give occasion to the flesh due to the liberty that we've been given. Now obviously there are those that do. There are those that fall uh, from grace as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5, but we have to understand what Paul is there speaking about. In Galatians 5, he will let us know that there are those that fall from grace in two different ways. Some fall from grace because they're trying to live up to the merits of the law and thus they've fallen from grace. Or uh, they're using their liberty as an occasion to the flesh and they're living an ungodly, licentious lifestyle. Well, they've also fallen from grace. So you can go to either extreme. You become, become very legalistic and fall from grace or you become very sinful in your daily behavior and, and you still fall from grace. But that doesn't mean you fall from heaven itself. It's talking about falling from our position in discipleship of following the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are objections that are made to the doctrine of eternal security. I don't know why any would want to object to it. I find it one of the most comforting uh, positions that the Bible declares is that you and I stand firmly in the love of God, that there is nothing, as Paul would say in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If that could happen, just presume for a moment that you could live in such a way maybe you fail to believe you have believed at one point and you stop or perhaps you've fallen in some error in your life some gross sin perhaps you've uh, committed adultery or fornication or you've gotten caught up in a lifestyle of being a drug addict or maybe even committed some heinous crime such as murder and so as such um The world would teach you or some in the world would teach you. And maybe you would even believe that through those wicked actions, you no longer belong to the Lord. There's there's dire consequences to that position. That means that your behavior, good or bad, your behavior can overthrow the foreknowledge of God before the world began. That means your behavior is more powerful than God's foreknowledge when he foreknew you in love. That also means our behavior can overthrow the election of God that took place before the world began. If it be true that you can fall from grace, meaning you're standing with God in your place in heaven, then also um, his predestination of you to be conformed to the image of a son is meaningless because you have the ability to overthrow that. Now let's move to the legal phase of salvation Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross he shed his blood for your sins even the sin of unbelief neglect or walking away or whatever sin you might do that might make you think in your mind that you've fallen from grace and you're no longer preserved uh, in Christ then that means Christ shed his blood for you and your abilities are stronger than his and your sins can overpower the blood of the son of God. But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter five, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then we come to the doctrine of our vital salvation when we're born of the spirit of God. And now we're made partakers of the divine nature. If we can fall from grace to the point that we're no longer one of his, then what power did the Holy Ghost really have in our lives? Obviously not as much as we would have. So every major doctrinal principle that we've looked at already, all interconnect, they're all interdependent, and if you remove one link out of the chain of salvation, the whole thing comes falling down. But God hasn't uh, left it in such a way that man is able to do that. Uh, It's impossible to fall from where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. You were chosen by God based upon his foreknowledge, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, made alive by the Holy Ghost, and you are now kept by the power of God. How do I know that? Because it's what the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. He says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. So for just a moment in verse 4 he talks about our inheritance and how that that can't be taken away that it's reserved for us it's undefiled it cannot fade it cannot uh, be corrupted. Well, what good is that inheritance if you yourself cannot reach the place to receive it? Well, he goes on in the next verse to tell us that we're safe as well. He says, Who, not those things that he's just talking about, who are kept, that's you and I, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season of need be your in heaviness through manifold temptation. So here the Apostle Peter makes it abundantly clear that once you and I were begotten again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we were begotten again to a particular inheritance. And he says, and don't worry, it won't flee away, it won't fade away. He says, and not only that, but you will not miss out on it, because you are kept by the power of God, he says, through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So here, going back to our opening text, the Apostle Paul says that there was an occasion in his life that he gave an answer. This was his first answer to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ after he had been born again on the Damascus Road, and then he becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus. As you read the account of Paul's life, there were those that were uh, terrified of him, and understandably so. Even when the Lord comes to Ananias, who's there in Damascus, and tells him he's to go to a street called Straight, and there he's to meet Saul of Tarsus, uh, Ananias is saying, Lord, I think you've forgotten who this man is. Uh, he said, he's, he's done a lot of terrible things to your people. And so Ananias is trying to reacquaint the Lord with the life of Saul of Tarsus. And, you know, we find that the Lord tells him, he says, uh, he's a chosen vessel unto me. Uh, he says, uh, he's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, you're to show him what great things he's to suffer in my name. So even the first gospel minister that uh, God tells to go preach to Saul says, hold up a minute. This is a man that is uh, a torturous man. This man is a terrible man. This is a man that has bound Christians and put them to death. He's caused uh, your believers, Lord, to blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want me to go and preach to this man? He says, yes, behold, he prayeth. You go and you preach to him. So Ananias, he does as the Lord commands and Uh, And does it very obediently because he even gets very bold with Saul of Tarsus. Tells him, why tarriest thou? He says, arise, be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. So he doesn't hold back when he preaches to Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus becomes a believer uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same one that he had persecuted, now he believes on his name. And now he's ready to go and preach uh, the things that he has seen and heard. But it says, at my first answer, no man stood with me. And as you read the account of Paul's life, it took a man by the name of Barnabas, whose name means the son of consolation. It takes Barnabas, a vouchsafe the name of Paul, so that these folks would receive the apostle Paul there at Jerusalem. And so ultimately he is um, given an audience before uh, God's church. But he says, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. He says, I pray that God would not lay it to their charge. He says, notwithstanding... He said, While it may be true that no man stood with me, he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And then he says, And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. You might say, Well, what lion is he talking about? Was he thrown into a den of lions like Daniel? I don't know. Uh, there's thoughts that when he was there in Ephesus, there in the amphitheater, maybe he had to face down the lions. I, who knows? But I think ultimately he's talking about, I was delivered out of Satan's mouth. I was delivered from the great enemy, Satan. And so now Paul is going to turn his attention from the lion to the lamb. He says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And he says, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. So the lion came at the apostle Paul, maybe in a very forceful, direct way. And then the apostle Paul will let us know when he wrote to the church at Corinth that even Satan can be transformed into an angel of light. And so if Satan could not attack him directly, as he had before successfully, then Satan would come at him from uh, every different angle that he could. And so what does Paul say? Not only has he delivered me out of the mouth of the lion, he says, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work. Whatever it is that uh, Satan or all the devils of hell would bring against me and against you, whatever it is that uh, wicked men on this earth would try to bring against you, And even what your own carnal nature will do against you, he says, the Lord shall deliver us from every evil work. So whatever it is that men or devils might try to do against the child of God, according to what Paul says, he says, the Lord will deliver us from every evil work. If he's delivered us out of the mouth of the lion, one of the most dangerous places the child of God could ever be, there in the snare of the devil, he says, I was delivered out of the lion's mouth, he says, and not only that, the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, that means he's going to remove me from the place where danger is. In the moment that I'm in peril, that there's a hazard coming against me in my life, says says the Lord uh, delivered me the Lord uh, took me out of that place of danger and then notice what he goes on to say and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom so he's taken us from the place of danger to the place of great safety which he says is his heavenly kingdom itself so again, he says the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever amen so no wonder the apostle Paul who had I mean, just consider the man's life for a bit. I mean, this was a man that we know felt great weight of guilt for the things that he had done against God's people. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Being born of the Spirit of God did not take away, in fact, it brought to him the guilt of the shame of the things that he had done of those who had loved the Lord Jesus Christ that he had persecuted. I mean, just imagine, as Paul traveled to preach the gospel, you know that he must have encountered individuals That as he looked out among them, it had to to have happened. Coincidentally, it just had to occur this way. That occasionally he would run into somebody that maybe he had put their spouse to death because they would not deny the name of the Lord Jesus. Maybe he met a child. And that child's parents were in the grave because of the sentence of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, They would not turn away from the Lord Jesus. And that child is now maybe an adult who's a believer and now sitting under the sound of the gospel preached by the very man who had put that child's parents to death. Uh, Maybe there were individuals that were still in in the jail cells of the city of Jerusalem. Because of the sentence that Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, brought against them. Perhaps uh, there were Christians that were having to uh, uh, go and visit their own family members who were uh, locked up, their freedom taken from them. And now they're having to also sit under the sound of the man's voice who had brought that sentence against them. You don't think that bothered that man when he preached the gospel and he had to contend in his mind and uh, reconcile what he had done in his past uh, uh, with the grace and love of God that was motivating him and driving him in his presence. Certainly it did. I think that's exactly why he prayed to the Lord those three times, uh, that that messenger of Satan, the thorn in the flesh, would be removed from him. But the Lord instead says, no, he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength shall be made perfect in weakness. So here's this man that has a struggle that I cannot even begin to imagine. I can't begin to think about what it would have been like. I know I've wronged folks. And there's times that I've stood before congregations and I've looked out. And I know that I'm preaching to folks that I have wronged. But not in the way that Paul had. <laughs> not, to, not to say that my wrong was any better, any worse. It's still, But it, it, I didn't have to, I've never had to deal with what he had to deal with. But this man found great solace that even though he had done horrific things in his past, that once he was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ by Christ on Damascus Road, he knew from that moment on he was securely placed in the arms and the care of Jesus, and that would be forever. So again, he says, The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. We find in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul lets us know that the Lord Jesus, according to verse 2 of Hebrews 12, he says, you and I are to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. There are some in this world, and some that even bear our name, that believe that if you and I do not abide faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not live faithfully to the end, if we're not going to persevere in holiness and our standing morality, and morality before God, that there is a, a great chance, maybe a certain uh, chance that you and I uh, will not be with the Lord's people the last day. I think that's one of the most damnable things that can be preached to a child of God to try to convince somebody who has stepped down into the mire of sin that here they are in danger of the fires of hell, instead of trying to exhort them to love and good works through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they try to bring upon them the fears of the fires of hell uh, to, listen, if they were afraid of the fires of hell, they wouldn't have gotten that place to start with. And so the child of God, who's found themselves in deep mire, in a pit that's down deep into this world, uh, they don't need to hear that they're in the dangers of hell's fire. They need to hear about the love and grace of an almighty God that's able to redeem them even from the sin that they're presently in and be exhorted and rebuked for what they're doing through the love of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ not fear of what Satan is going to bring into their life when they meet him at hell's door when they pass from this life that's not what the child of God is going to benefit from not at all see here this verse tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 looking unto Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. (laughs) I'm thankful that Paul puts it this way. He's the author of it. That's the one who began it. He's written it. But he's also the finisher of our... That means he's the alpha and the omega of my life in him. He is the first of the last, the beginning and the ending. I'm not in charge of the beginning of my salvation and I'm not in charge of the final chapter of my salvation. Uh, from first to last, beginning to end, start to finish, it's all in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul here lets us know that he is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Now I promise you living a life of faith is vital to our happiness and our uh, spiritual health as we walk in this world. But you standing faithful to the very end is not what's going to give you entrance into heaven. What's going to give you entrance into heaven is you're going to be there because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and for no other reason. We find in Hebrews chapter five, says he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. And don't worry, every child of God will obey him. All that the Father given me shall come to me, he says in John chapter 6. So what does that mean? It means every child of God that hears the voice of the Son of God when regeneration occurs. What does that mean? He is the author of their eternal salvation. And if he's the author of our eternal salvation, we can know he's also the finisher of our faith. And so there's no devil in hell or no man upon the face of this earth that can separate you from the one who authored your salvation and who will finish your faith. Uh, Paul says this to the church at Philippi. And uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 he says being confident of this very thing talk about specific Uh, Paul gets very specific he says being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it to the day of Jesus Christ Uh, we have an article of faith that says that we believe that you and I shall be preserved by the power of God until the Lord comes again See, Baptists have long held that position. Now, in, our, in some of our ancient articles of faith, it might be termed this way, that we believe that the child of God shall persevere in grace to glory. I don't have a problem with that, because I know exactly what our brethren meant when they said it. Now then, there's other articles of faith that have been mingled in, Let's say it this way, and just a little slip of language can make a big difference. Made a big difference in Genesis 3 when Satan came to Eve, did it not? Let's say it this way, we believe that the child of God shall persevere in holiness until glory. Big difference. Me persevering in grace, that just means I will continue in grace until I believe that fully. Now, will I persevere? Will I continue in holiness to glory? I hope that I live in such a way all the days of my life that I could be called a good man. But I'm not persevering in holiness right now. I've had some wicked thoughts already this morning. Um, I've thought things I shouldn't have this morning. I've said things today already I shouldn't have said. I've already failed for this day. I mean, it's not even lunchtime yet, and I've already messed up for this day. Uh, Tomorrow I'll get to start over, but uh, it won't be by lunchtime that I'll have already messed up by tomorrow either. Uh, Every day... Soon as I wake up, sometimes before I wake up, I wake up from a dream, and I know that even my dream was sent voice., You couldn't control that? Well, it's still my fault. But anyway, Paul says, being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. You and I will continue in grace until the Lord comes back. That's just a reality. And any of that would say differently from that, they're clearly ignorant of what eternal life means. So going back to John chapter 6, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He says, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Now, what is Jesus there saying? He's letting us know that God entrusted into his care every elect child of God. He says, And they're all going to come to me. He says, every single one of them. He says, and I came down from heaven. He says, not to do mine own will. He says, I'm here at the Father's will. He says, and this is the will of the Father which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, everybody that was given to Jesus in the election that took place before the world began, he says, all that the Father hath given me, that I should lose no thing. Nothing. (laughs) Not one is what he's saying. I mean, that's a great Savior, is it not? I mean... Some of us might say, well, if Jesus can even just reach 90%, that's a pretty good success rate. If he could hit 75%, that's still a pretty... But what happens if you're in the 10% that didn't make it? What if you're in the 25% that didn't... The percentage won't matter if you had to be in the wrong percentage. And even at that, I, don't, I can't consider him a successful Savior unless he's able to complete it for everyone entrusted into his care. How could you call somebody a good steward that even messes up in the case of one? And how could Jesus Himself, as it says in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, be satisfied if one of His elect was ever burning in the fires of hell? He would not be. In fact, He would burst what hell wide open to go and retrieve that one. I guarantee you that. But it'll never happen. It won't be needful. We turn. Uh, oh goodness, there's so many places we could go. There, there where we just were, He says. He said. Of all that the Father gave me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again. Why does he say that again? Because he's already, we've already experienced one resurrection in Christ when we were born of the Spirit of God. So he says, we'll raise it up again at the last day. So the child of God's already experienced one resurrection, a quickening from a death in sins to a life in Christ. But you're going to also experience a second resurrection. Even if you're alive when uh, the Lord comes back, Paul says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye... When the uh, trumpet shall sound, uh, he says, and a trumpet will sound, he says, and the Lord shall ascend with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So Paul said, this, is, this may be a mystery, he says, but understand this, we may not all die, but we all will be changed. Every single child of God will be changed when the Lord Christ comes back. Uh, When he comes, whether you're uh, living on the earth or whether you're planted in the earth, uh, you're going to experience a change in that moment. Paul says it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. How long is that? It's not long. It's going to happen instantaneously. Uh, You're not even really going to know what's happened to you. It happens so fast. And then all of a sudden, you're going to bear in your body the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And the Lord's going to do that for every one of his... That's what he just told us there in John chapter 6. Again, he says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all which he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. So that just told me that it's the will of God the Father, the will of Jehovah, that every elect that was foreknown by God, predestinated by God, elected by God, and died for by Jesus Christ, regenerated by the Holy Ghost, it's his will that not one of them shall be lost but raised again at the last day. Now, is your efforts in sin, your wickedness, going to overpower the will of God at the last day? Do you think that right then, when Jesus comes back and the trumpet sounds, that God is going to be concerned that whether or not you've lived a good enough life, whether you've overpowered his will or not? No, he has no concern about that whatsoever. That's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 how he does it. Moreover, whom he predestinated, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them, not he will glorify. He said, them he also glorified. How can God speak that way in the past tense? Because God can sin as though it's already done. He knows it's already complete. We're just waiting for time to fulfill. You know, there in uh, Isaiah chapter 46, it talks about the foreknowledge of God. (laughs) Let's turn to it for just a moment. It lets us know that God already... Knows these things are going to occur. Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He says, call on a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. So God has just made it clear that the matter of our salvation is firmly in his hands. He's purposed it and he will do it. Thinking of that, let's turn to 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he lets them know. In verse 22, he says, we're to abstain from all appearance of evil. He says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. That means completely. He says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has just said, I am praying for this. Now, Paul's not praying for this in hopes that God will answer my prayer. And if I didn't pray this, it might not happen. This is one of those occasions where Paul is just in agreement in his prayer with the will of God. And so he says, here's what I'm praying for. He says, I pray, God, your whole spirit, your soul, and body. Understand that. Spirit, soul, and body. All three. I've told you, we're we're a trichotomy. We're made up of three parts. In that way, we bear the image of the Godhead. Uh, You are spirit, soul, and body. And according to this... It is spirit, soul, and body that Jesus redeemed. It's spirit, soul, and body that God uh, chose before the world began. It's spirit and soul that's regenerated uh, by the Spirit of God when He comes into your life. But at the resurrection, even the body is going to be impacted by redemption. And there at that day, we will see in our bodies the redemption fully of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body. Be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that going to happen? Read the next verse. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. <laughs> it's not dependent on you to keep yourself in that state. He says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. God's got it taken care of. It's under his control. Now let's turn to John chapter 10. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, I think Jesus spoke abundantly plain there, did he not? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's all pretty basic language. And I give unto them eternal life. What is the definition of eternal? It means forever. It doesn't have an end. It's unceasing. So when you're born of the Spirit of God and you're given eternal life and you can lose it because you don't uphold some commandments that some minister or some church or group of churches have come up with, then how eternal was the eternal life that Jesus just said that he gave to you? It's not eternal at all. It has a time limit on it. It can expire. Something can happen to it. Well, then Jesus has made a liar. Jesus just said that I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. He said, no man can pluck them out of my hand. He says, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. He says, my Father is greater than all. He says, and I and my Father are one. I think that verse uh, speaks abundantly uh, with abundant clarity about the matter. Jesus gives us eternal life. Nobody can perish. Nobody can pluck us out of his hand. Nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Why? Because the Father is greater than all. He says, and I and my Father are one, so we're in the hand of Christ who's in the hand of God, and God's greater than any other, and God has just said that you're eternally safe. Well, that satisfies it for me. I'm not concerned about it anymore. Now, my issue's always been, I don't struggle about whether or not Jesus can keep me saved. I've never struggled about whether Jesus could get me saved. Where I struggle from time to time, am I in the elect that God even purposed to save to start with? And if I wasn't, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can believe, nothing I can do, nothing I can say. No efforts on my part that could bring me into the family of God. And so if I'm not already there, there's no hope for me whatsoever. But yet if, uh, if I have Christ in me, the hope of glory, then that tells me that I was in Christ before the world began. That I was in Christ when he was at Calvary. That I was in Christ when he died, when he was buried, and when he rose again. That I'm represented in Jesus right now when he's seated at the right hand of God. That I'll be in Jesus until he comes back. And then I'll be in him and with him when he brings us all to glory. I believe that with all that I am. The truth that that happens for the elect child of God. Now whether I'm in that, there's times I have doubts on that. And then there's times I have no doubts about it at all. But those times that my doubts are small, they're very, very, very limited. There's moments when I'm here in the service of God and I'm here preaching the gospel or hearing some man preach and power and demonstration, and it seems like all of my doubts fade away. But as soon as the service is over, or as soon as we're taken from the high of that level of gospel preaching and it starts to, uh, the man starts closing, the doubts come back. But thank God, while I may doubt, he does not. He says, I will do all my pleasure. Let's turn to Romans 8 and close out here this morning. Paul asks a number of questions that are important questions and they, they demand an answer. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That, that's a question that needs to be answered. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, that does not imply... There is no one against us. In fact, it implies there is someone against us. The question is resolved in this, who can be successfully against us? I need to know that. I need to know, is there any any enemy in heaven, which there's none there, on earth, there are, or in hell, certainly is, that would come against me? And yes, there's enemies on earth and there's enemies in hell that will come against me and come against you. Uh, don't. That's why Peter says, "Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil. What's an adversary? Your enemy, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." Paul says, "God delivered me out of the mouth of the lion." Peter says, You have an enemy, an adversary. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's attempting every single moment of every single day to devour elect children of God this world over. So don't think that you have no enemy that's trying to attack you. You do. But here the Apostle Paul is going to make it clear that this enemy, uh, while he may be successful in removing your joy in Christ while you live in this world, he cannot remove you from the love of God. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He answers that question this way. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What does that mean? It means that if God, who is for us, Sees an enemy come against us. If God was willing not to spare his son, but deliver him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, give us deliverance from the attempts and the attacks of the adversary. That's what that answer is just telling us. That if God gave his greatest, which is the life of his son, he'll give you what you need when the enemy comes against you. (laughs) Then the next question is this. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That is also an important question. Is there an enemy against you? Yes. Is he ever going to be successful? No. All right, well, here's the next question. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? How does this chapter start out? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So here the apostle makes it abundantly clear, proclaims it without any uncertainty whatsoever, that the child of God who walks out to the Spirit, here they stand uh, without any condemnation. He says there is therefore now, not uh, when Jesus comes back. That's true when Jesus comes back. That's true at the moment of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was true when Paul penned it. It's true when you read it today. It'll be true when you read it tomorrow. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation. <laughs> All right, if there's no condemnation, that means that you have been pronounced not just not guilty, but holy and innocent by God the Father through the death of God the Son. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Notice what the answer is. It is God that justifieth. (laughs) To stand justified is to be the opposite of condemned. So that just tells us that you and I stand justified. And who justified us? It is God that justifieth. Tell me. What judge is there that can overrule the judgment made by God the Father? I love when uh, uh, God was speaking to Abraham before he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he begins to tell uh, Abraham what he was going to do. And Abraham, as you remember, begins to bargain with God. uh, Whether or not if there was 50 righteous in the city, would God spare the city? And God said for 50, of course, he would spare it. And the the number keeps going down to finally it's a ten. But there's a question that uh, Abraham asked in all of that. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's as though he's reminding God, you always do what is right. Now, of course, God was never going to do right. If there had been ten righteous in that city, God would have never destroyed it. And that would have, he would have saved that city whether he had that conversation with Abraham or not. Obviously, God knew there wasn't ten righteous in that city. And so he was going to destroy it. But that question is, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's an interesting phrase and title for God, the judge of all the earth. Now then, if he's the judge of all the earth, you and I are earth dwellers. Then what charge can be brought against you if it is God that's justified? Who's going to bring the charge? Who's going to come before God and say, well, here is a sin over here. Well, as we read last week in Hebrews chapter 8, God says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more against them. So if God says I'm never going to remember their sins against them and Satan comes with a charge, number one, God's just going to throw him out of heaven to start with. He doesn't have standing. Uh, you know, some folks uh, think that it might be quite easy to get before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I don't remember it right now off the top of my head no, how many cases they hear in a year for such a a court with such authority and that settles such matters, you would think they would hear a lot of cases. They actually hear a limited amount of cases compared to what the appellate courts underneath them hear. And one of the things that you have to prove before you can even go before that court is whether or not you have standing. And right now, I have no cause to go before that court, so even if I was bothered by something and I went before the court or had an attorney try to, my petition be thrown out, With this answer, I have no standing. If Satan were to try to go into heaven with a charge against you, you know what God the Father would just say, you have no standing in this court. Uh, I'm not even going to hear what you have to say. You don't even have a voice in this court to start with. And so he cast him out any time that he would try to attempt to bring a charge against you. So what does Satan do? He knows he can't go to the court of God and convict you there. But here's where he can go, into the court of your heart and mind, and he can convict you there. He'll come to you and he'll tell you what a low down, no good sinner that you are. And all you have to do to respond to him is, you're exactly right, that's what I am. But you know what? That's exactly the type of person that Jesus came to die for. So don't try to defend yourself to Satan. All you have to do is hold up the Lord Jesus Christ and let him know that it was folks like you that Jesus came to die for. And all of a sudden, that takes away the power of Satan to try to condemn you in your own mind. So again, he asked the question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who, Who is he that condemneth? Another important question. It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Now then comes the most important question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now this this question is vital because if somebody can separate you from the love of Christ, you now are in peril of being condemned by a charge laid against you by an adversary that can be successful. So all this is building up to the most important question. Because if this last question, if there's any, if, it's, if it can be brought down, if, it, if the love of Jesus for you can be destroyed, if Satan can poke holes in the love of Christ in, to, towards you or to some other child of God, then the rest of these questions, the answer completely changes. Everything that I've just preached all hinges on the answer to this question being a firm and resounding no one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now he asks who, and then he begins to answer the question with what? He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He shall shall tribulation that shall trouble. Well, the Bible lets us know that you and I are troubled on every side. So I need to know, can trouble separate me from the love of Christ? That's a good question. Shall tribulation, a man that is born of a woman, is few days in what? Full of trouble. And so we need to know, can trouble separate us from the love? There's trouble that comes my way that I cause. There's trouble that comes against me that totally took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting. I wasn't looking for. I didn't create it. Uh, It was made by somebody else. I get in enough trouble on my own that I do create. And sometimes I like to stir up a little trouble for other folks. That's just my nature. Uh, But I need to know, shall trouble separate me from the love of Christ? Why do I need to know that? Because I deal with trouble every single day. What about distress? What does distress mean? It means confusion. Are you ever confused? I certainly am. There's times I don't know what to do. I don't know the answer. Now take somebody about gospel belief. Okay. I believe that the gospel is important, I believe the gospel is valuable, I have spent uh, 30 years of my life, almost, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I didn't believe that it was important, if I didn't believe it was vital, if I didn't believe it was needful, why would I have spent so much time and effort uh, to preach the gospel literally from coast to coast, north to south? I've done it because I believe it is vital to the spiritual health and well-being of the child of God while he or she lives upon the face of this earth. I do not believe that it will get you to heaven. I don't believe that the lack of belief will prevent you going to heaven. But I do believe it will teach you about heaven while you live here and equip you against the enemy that will come against you to try to convince you that you're not one of the Lord's and that you'll never see him. And that's why I'm willing to spend and be spent preaching the gospel wherever the Lord will afford me the opportunity to do so. (laughs) But there's a lot of people in this world that never have heard the name of Jesus. There's a lot of people this morning that are gathered together in assemblies and they don't believe the truth about Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but not the way that you and I do. They're confused. And I don't say that to mock them, I don't say that to be unkind of them. It's just the reality. Because there are people believing and preaching, as I am standing here preaching this morning, that you have to believe, you have to be baptized, you have to do this, that, or the other to go to heaven. That's a confused preacher. And somebody believing that message is a confused person. That's just the reality. I'm not going to try to uh, gloss over that. I'm not mocking them. Once again, let me state that clearly. I'm not mocking them. I would to God that the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ had gone farther and uh, deeper than it has and that more understood it. So the question is, shall distress, shall confusion separate us from the love of Christ? There's a lot of confused people in this world. I know the truth and you know the truth. I'm not, but I, I'm confused on some verse of the Bible. You bring me a certain, a few, there are verses you bring me, I don't have a clue. <laughs> don't ask me what it means, because I don't know. Uh, there are some verses I've been confused on all the time I've been reading the Word of God. I have been actively engaged in reading the Word of God since I was 12 years of age. I'm 42, going on 43 And in almost 31 years of actively reading the Word of God, there's verses I don't have the first clue what they mean. I'm confused by them. Well, so I need to know, shall my confusion separate me from the love of Christ? Now you take somebody who's confused on the doctrine of salvation itself. I don't believe I'm confused on that. But let's take somebody in this world that is confused about that. Can that separate them from the love of Jesus? That's a question that needs to be answered. What about persecution? When there are men that come against the children of God who believe the doctrines of grace and believe me, if the laws of this nation all of a sudden were suspended and it was so allowed in this nation, we would see enemies advancing on this church that we didn't even know existed, that we thought didn't even exist in this world. They're there. There's just certain laws right now still intact in our nation that restrain them. If those laws are ever overruled or suspended, we're in trouble. So let's say those laws were suspended. Let's say the Bill of Rights were tossed out. Let's say if the county officials said, you know what, we don't care about the Bill of Rights anymore. We're totally ignoring them. And so Hillsborough County is adopting a county religion. And everybody in this county must obey it. And if they do not, then we're coming out, we will lock up the facility and anybody that continues to promote it, will put them in jail. Say, well, we've still got the state on our side. We do. And maybe then we have a governor and a a legislature that will stand in our defense. But let's say they say, you know what? This religion that we're holding to, it's, it's affecting us now. We're going to ignore the Bill of Rights. Say, well, we still have the federal government on our side. We do. But let's say the executive branch of our government who's to enforce the law says, you know what? Those folks that believe in the doctrines of grace, that's not advantageous to the desires that we have against this populace. And so we're not going to enforce the Bill of Rights anymore. Now what do we do? Who's on our side? No one outside of the Lord. Let's say persecution were were going to come. Now all of a sudden we're facing down the barrels of guns for the things that we believe. And we're not going to yield. God gives us a boldness and a courage all of a sudden that we didn't think we could possess but thank God, let's say that day comes and he gives it to us. Shall persecution separate us from the love of Christ? You say, well, right now that question's not all that important. Well, let's just say that the episode I just painted came to pass. All of a sudden, that question would be very important to us. He says, What about famine? Uh, I've never faced a famine, I've never known what it is to go hungry. Uh, there's been times I've missed a meal or two. Uh, I'm a little hungry right now. I ate somewhat of a light supper. I didn't eat breakfast, which I rarely ever do. And so I'm, uh, I'm getting ready for dinner myself. I know what time it is. My stomach's telling me, don't worry. Uh, but uh, I've never faced famine, though. What little hunger I face has been self-inflicted because I want a little more responsible. I've never gone to a grocery store and seen every shelf empty. Now, I've been to the grocery store and saw empty shelves, but not every shelf. Well, when COVID was hitting and people were loading out grocery carts uh, two and three at a time, I was beginning to wonder a little bit. But uh, never have seen famine, but there have been folks that have faced it. My great-grandmother grew up in West Texas during the Dust Bowl. Back then, they lived in a house that were 1 by 12 slats were the wall. They built a foundation, and they literally would use 1 by 12 slats. That would be the wall of the house, and they'd put a roof on it. In fact, the house that she lived in and we lived in and is still there, that's all it is is a 1 by 12 slat wall house with siding put on it. I've torn some parts out that on the inside of that there was nothing but newspaper and then quarter-inch sheetrock, and that's all there was. That was the extent of the walls of that house. Now think about facing a West Texas uh, tornado in a building like that. She taught about the days that they literally would take a wet rag and wear it over their face in order to breathe because the dust was coming through the cracks in the walls of the house. <clears throat> they knew what it was to face famine. There's a big reason, that, that's a big reason why so many went west to California to try to just scratch out a living during the Dust Bowl. She lived it, she saw it. Um, I can't think of the novel that was written about it. Is it The Grapes of Wrath? It was written all about that experience that many people went through. My grandmother told me about it firsthand. Anyway, famine, nakedness, peril, that's a sword. He says, as it is written for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He says, but nay, in, I love this language, in all these things, not before, not after, he says, in all these, while all this is going on, And some of these can be going on simultaneously for you. Some of them may come individually in your life. But I suspect that every single day of our experience, we are going through one of the things in this category that Paul has just addressed. He says, nay, in... In the middle of that, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that goes back to the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul just says there's no one and nothing that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means you are safely preserved in the Lord Jesus Christ. He that hath begun a good work in you shall perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. There's no alarm for the child of God that what you've experienced in the new birth shall ever be taken away from you. You may lose the joy of his salvation for a while. And I know people that ought to be here right now today that apparently have lost the joy of the Lord's salvation. But I take this comfort, they haven't lost the Lord's salvation. (laughs) They've lost the joy of it, but they haven't lost salvation itself. There's been moments in my experience that I didn't enjoy in the salvation that I had in Christ like I ought to. But thank God there's never been a moment if I've ever been embraced in Him that I actually lost the reality of that salvation. And I never will and neither shall you. May God bless you.